Well, another Sunday, and it is good to be with you. I thought today that it would be beneficial for us to sort of piggyback a little bit on what we were talking about over the last couple of weeks insofar as it concerns what is the church supposed to look like. And one of the points that we focused on was that we're supposed to be affecting the outside world. We're told that the, the new believers in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 were gaining favor in the community of Jerusalem, which was a difficult thing because those people had been told by their religious leaders that the, the faith, the Christian faith, was a threat, was a heresy, it was a danger. And yet, because of the way the believers were living, they were earning the right to be able to share Christ, and God was turning hearts, opening them up so that that seed could be planted and take effect. And I find that very encouraging, given that I think we're in similar circumstances today. The church is not held in high esteem in our culture today. I don't know if those of you who live here and have maybe been born and raised here know it, but it's a little different here than in other places in the country. And if you go online, you'll figure that out when you start talking about some of the things that the Scripture says, when you start you know, declaring the truth of God, you're going you're gonna to get some pushback, a lot of pushback, especially if you go to a place like where I'm from. That's not the first time that's ever happened. As we've already seen, the church here in Jerusalem was under duress and was, was being attacked from the outside. And people, if they didn't know any better, were just drawing conclusions about the church based on what everybody was saying. They didn't have Twitter back then, but I suspect if they would have, uh, the church would have been uh, the topic of more than a few conversations and, uh, and not nice things would have been said about us. And so when we're in those circumstances, the question is, can we still make an impact without compromising the truth of what God says? Can we still see God work through us as he did through them to change hearts? And I believe the answer to that question is a resounding yes, which means we need to study how that would work. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.11, he said, those of us who know what it is to fear the Lord seek to persuade men or to persuade others. That's our task, is to be persuasive. Not because we're so smart, we're such great debaters, because we have such amazing command of the Scriptures, but because of who God is and what He has poured into us. We're just the cup. It's what's inside that is persuasive. All we're asked to do by the Lord is to just turn it loose, pour it out, let it shine. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. The title of our message, uh, it'll probably spill over into next week because you know me, I can never get it all said in one Sunday. Such a long-winded fellow. The title is Impact, Affecting Our World for Christ. And today we're going to take a look at the story of a man who did just that against all odds. He was a very smart man, but also a very godly man and a very outspoken man, the kind of man who didn't mince words, 
The kind of man that I don't think would have known how to be politically correct if his life depended on it. He was a straight shooter. He was almost a throwback to the Old Testament prophets who regularly hurt the people's feelings and spoke truth even when it wasn't popular. And yet this man is going to wind up wielding more influence in his culture, an antagonistic culture, than probably any of his contemporaries. His name is Paul the Apostle, and his story is found in Acts chapter 27, where I'm going to ask you to turn right now and slide down to verse 33. And meanwhile, I'm going to jump all the way back to Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to teach you seven chapters before we even start. So buckle up. I hope you had breakfast. No, it won't take that long. We'll move fast. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 20. After Paul went out on his third missionary journey back to the churches that he had originally helped to found on his previous uh, missionary jaunts and to sort of visit and reinforce those cities and to branch out a little bit. But when he was done, his heart was torn. Now, he loved what he was doing. He loved the fact that he was taking the gospel to people that had never heard it before, primarily the Gentile world. Why, he had been to the capital of the world, Rome itself, and he had stood before Caesar. Or actually, no, wait a minute, that's, that's coming. <laughs> he wanted to go before Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome, but he hadn't gone yet. See, I do make mistakes, a lot of them. Um, but here, he's got a yearning to go back home because he loved his people, and he knew that his people, by and large, were rejecting the gospel message, while the non-Jewish world was embracing it and being changed and saved and churches were being started all over the Roman world in his hometown and in, in his place where he was from, Judea, and in, with the people that he loved, his fellow Jews, they weren't receiving it. They were angry about it. They were antagonistic toward it, and it broke his heart. He wanted to see them saved, so he decided that he was going to go back to the motherland, to Jerusalem itself, and try to share the gospel there, right in the, in the mouth of the lion. Well, as soon as he makes that decision, the people that loved him the most and knew him the best began to warn him. They began to tell him, Paul, I, I understand why you feel that way, but it won't do any good. And especially you. You're the messenger that they can't hear. They won't listen. As soon as they see you, they'll turn on you, they'll attack you. The only thing that will be waiting for you in Jerusalem is hardship and persecution. If you go, not only will you not lead your people into the gospel message, but you will drive them further away because you are a firebrand. But Paul was convinced that he needed to go home and to do this. And so he began to make his plans, even though he had been warned by several individuals and by the Holy Spirit himself that the only thing waiting for him in Jerusalem was chains. That's Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 21, Paul arrives finally in Jerusalem, and he meets with the leader of the Jerusalem church, James. Now, not the James of James and John. That James has already been executed. But James, the half-brother of Jesus... And he meets with James, and he basically plots out his strategy. He, he intends to go to the temple and start teaching there. 
It's one thing to go to Jerusalem and teach, oh, no, no, we're going to go right to the temple, right where the people that hate you the most are. And James, you can tell, is trying to mitigate Paul's good intentions and trying to dial him back and saying, if you go there, you are going to stir up a storm. So James tries to help him, and he says, listen, let's at least make some overtures toward the Jewish religious community who are convinced that you are trying to abolish the law of Moses. Now, we both know that you're not trying to abolish the law of Moses. You're teaching the fulfillment of it in Christ. But they don't know that. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to make some overtures toward them in the hopes that their misconceptions about your teaching may help ward off some potential trouble. And so Paul agrees. And then they go to the temple. And it doesn't change a thing. As soon as they see him, the mob, I'm sure stirred up by their religious leaders, attack him. They drag him out of the temple, into the streets, and begin to pummel him. They nearly beat him to death. And they would have, if not for one thing, someone came to his rescue. And the most unlikely one of all. Next to the Jerusalem temple, the Romans had built a garrison in a former palace of Herod that he had converted uh, on behalf of, of his best friend, uh, Mark Antony. And so the fortress, this garrison for Roman soldiers, it was a military base, much like Dias. Uh, it was called the Fortress Antonia. It was named after Mark Antony. And it was right next door to the temple. And when the leader of that garrison, a man by the name of Claudius Lysias, hears that there is a riot stirring just outside his front door, he immediately takes soldiers and rushes down to put a stop to it before it spreads. And there, when he arrives, he finds a crowd surrounding one man who's being beaten to within an inch of his life. He takes Paul into custody and after allowing Paul to try to have one last word with the crowd, which only makes people angrier, he finally says, i got to get you up out of here. So he takes him into custody at the fortress. That's Acts 21. Now we're going to cover Acts 22 through 26. Paul stays at this garrison for a while, and Lysias tries to get to the bottom of what all the hubbub is about. So eventually he calls for a meeting of the local Jewish religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, and he takes Paul before them under guard, and he tries to figure out what the Sanhedrin is so angry about. But even the Sanhedrin is so angry that they can't even agree with themselves, and they're shouting accusations and counter-accusations, and they're conflicting with one another. And finally, Lysias says, this is getting us nowhere. All I'm doing is bringing this guy back in, and there's going to be a riot. And so he withdraws Paul under guard and takes him back to the Antonio garrison. And he's trying to figure out at that point, what should he do? Well, meanwhile, the Jewish religious leaders decide he's here, he's within range, we're going to assassinate Paul. And they put together a plot to do that, particularly because Lysias has decided he's going to transport Paul to the capital of Judea, a place known as Caesarea, which was right on the coast, the Mediterranean coast. And they had decided that when Paul was being transported, they were going to set up assassins who were going to ambush and kill him. Well, Paul finds out about it, and he passes on word to Lysias, and Lysias then says, okay. And he immediately transports Paul 
without telling a soul, under cover of night, under guard, and he successfully takes him to Caesarea, where he's then transferred into the custody of the Judean governor, a man by the name of Antonius Felix. And he stands before Felix for trial. And Felix, even after hearing all of the accusations against Paul and hearing Paul's defense, Felix knows in his heart This man isn't guilty of anything. He's angered them about some religious matter, but he certainly isn't guilty of anything that mandates that we, as the Roman government, get involved and execute him. But Felix also knows that if he releases Paul, which is the right thing to do, he's going to get in all kinds of political trouble. So he makes the decision that every politician makes under such circumstances. He procrastinates. He sends Paul back to his prison cell And he basically sits on his hands. He waits and he waits and he waits. And finally, he is relieved by his successor, another man by the name of Porcius Festus, who then comes to Judea as the governor and inherits this same problem. So Festus brings Paul before him for trial, and he listens to the arguments against him from the Jewish religious community, and he listens to Paul speak in very persuasive, very eloquent And Festus, like Felix, knows that Paul's innocent. But he also knows that if he releases him, he'll get in all kinds of political trouble. So he sends Paul back to his jail cell. And then finally, he brings in a couple of people that he was friends with. Herod Antipas II, who was the son of Herod Antipas I, who you probably would only know from the fact that he was the king who executed James, the brother of John. Well, now this is his son. He brings him in along with his sister, a woman by the name of Berenice. And he figures that these two monarchs, quote-unquote, even though the Judean governor was the, really the ruler of the area, that they would have some insight as to what's going on with these local customs, customs and what's going on with this guy and why are they so mad at him. But all they do is listen, and Paul tries to take a run even at Herod, He doesn't get anywhere, and eventually Paul comes to a stark realization. I've been sitting here in Caesarea for two years. I have wasted two years that I could have been out on the mission field, helping to plant new churches, helping to encourage and and strengthen the ones that were there, making a difference for the kingdom, but instead I am stuck here in a jail cell basically making an argument before people that know I'm not guilty but are too weak-willed to do anything about it. So Paul thinks, and he finally comes to a conclusion. I've really only got one option. If I stay here, I'm either going to rot in this cell and die here, or eventually the Jewish religious leaders who haven't stopped trying to plot against me are going to be successful and kill me, especially if the governor extradites me back to Jerusalem i got to get out of here, and i got to get back into to the work of God. And Paul has a trump card. Paul was a Roman citizen, which was a very rare and unique thing and a great privilege in the Roman world. Romans had all kinds of privileges. And one of them was that if they were ever on trial for something, and they suspected that they might not receive justice, they always had the option of, of appealing directly to the king of Rome, whom they refer to as the Caesar. And so Paul speaks to Festus, and he says, 
I'm a Roman citizen, and I appeal to Rome. And to show you the gravity of it, immediately Festus puts a stop to the trial. No more testimony, nothing. He tells Paul, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So he sends him back to his jail and begins to make plans to extradite Paul all the way to Rome. Now, Paul knew he was running a risk because the Roman Caesar at the time was a man by the name of Nero. And tradition teaches us that eventually, not during this episode, but later on, Nero would actually be the one to execute Paul. But for now, Paul figures, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to exercise my right. So he pulls the pin on that trump card, and they start making plans. A ship is chartered, and Paul, along with some other prisoners, are put in chains and prepared for extradition, Acts 27. Before the ship sets sail, uh, Paul and some of the other prisoners are placed in the custody of a centurion named Julius. Julius was a Roman centurion. He was, he was part of the royal guard stationed at Caesarea. It was a very elite group, almost like the Secret Service. So Paul was a prisoner of of importance, and so he was put into the custody of a man who was very competent, and then they prepare to set sail. They do, they head up north along the Mediterranean coast, which was the way sailing was primarily done back then. Ships didn't have all the equipment and everything else they have today, so transoceanic uh, trips were very rare. Most of the time, the ship would do like a cruise ship does today. You just sort of follow the coastline. So that's what they're doing. They're sailing from Caesarea north, and they're heading up the coast, and they stop at several ports along the way, and eventually come to a place called Myra, which is in modern Turkey, and they charter a grain carrier, which would have been a very large ship by comparison to the other ships in the area. It's from Alexandria, Egypt, and it is on its way toward Italy. So uh, Julius takes Paul, the other prisoners, and he books them passage on this grain carrier. There weren't really passenger ships back then, so this would have been the best way to get where they needed to go. We know from the narrative that Luke was with him. We also know there was another gentleman that you read about later in the New Testament known as Aristarchus, who was a devout uh, disciple of Paul and a very godly man, is with them as well, but, but not as prisoners, just as accompanying Paul. So they get on this Alexandrian grain ship, and they continue their trip toward Italy. But by now, winter is approaching, and a kind of a voyage like what they were planning to Italy was extremely dangerous. It was even dangerous to just go up the coastline. So as they make their way west, they come to the nearby island of Crete, where Paul had already been to share the gospel. And when they get there, Paul takes Julius aside because they were continuing to make plans to move on toward Italy, even though winter was coming. And Paul takes Julius aside, and he basically tells him, listen, I know you're dead set to get to Rome. I know all the other people on this ship are as well. But if we go, if we leave now, if we continue our voyage, if we leave this port, there's going to be a disaster at sea. But Julius 
speaks, even though Julius has come to respect Paul, he's even given him visitation privileges along this route where he could be with other Christians who were coming to support him. So Julius has already begun to get influenced and, and is gaining respect for Paul. So he listens to him, but then he goes to the people that he thinks were the most trustworthy, the owner of the ship and the navigator slash captain of the ship. And he asks them, and he says, what do you think? I'm told that it's dangerous to sail now, but I really would like to get to Rome, and I know you guys would too. What do you say? Is it better to just winter where we're at or to keep going? And both the owner and the captain tell him, mush on. We'll be fine. We just got to keep going. We won't try to go across the ocean, but let's just move out of this port, which isn't really suitable for us, and let's go a little further up the coast of Crete so we'll be closer to our destination when the time comes. So they set sail. What Paul, or excuse me, what um, Julius didn't know was that the two men that he was listening to their counsel had less than pure motives. You see, at the time, there was a severe grain shortage in Rome. Uh, the people were starving. And so the Caesar had sent out a call to anybody that grew grain to bring it to Rome, and they were so hungry for it that he would pay any price that they wanted to charge, and he would even indemnify them against loss at sea if they would just run the risk to bring it to Rome. So these two guys, all they could see were the dollar signs of getting this grain there. So of course they wanted to keep going. They weren't really all that concerned about the possible risks. So they set sail, and as soon as they do, we're told by Luke that they encounter a storm. Now, the word Luke uses is typhonicos. It's the root of our English word typhoon, which means serious storm, cyclone, hurricane at sea, tornado at sea, however you want to categorize it, a serious storm that almost immediately sweeps them away from the shore of Crete out to sea. To show you how much danger they were in, the crew immediately knows these were experienced sailors, and they start doing something called lashing the boat. They, they take ropes and literally submerge it beneath the ship itself and start tying it off as tightly as possible in order to hold it together to keep from breaking up at, at sea. They also drop anchor in order to slow their speed because they are being pushed further out to sea at great speed, and they don't really know What's beneath the surface? If they come up on land suddenly, they might be ripped apart by coral reefs. So they drop anchor in order to just try to slow them down, and they lower the sails for the same reason. But that doesn't work. And so they really get scared, and they do something that no sailor, especially in this economy, ever does, and that is they begin to jettison the cargo and not just the cargo, but some of the ship's equipment itself. They start throwing it overboard in order to reduce their draft. Those of you who've been in the Navy know what draft is, or if you have a boat or something. It's how far the ship is submerged beneath the water. They're trying to get lighter so they'll go up higher so that whatever is hidden beneath the surface won't tear them to pieces while they're out in the middle of the ocean. That doesn't work either, and they continue to be driven further off course. It gets so bad. They're out there for so long, and there seems to be no hope 
And soon everybody on that ship is in despair. Everyone. Some might have continued to perhaps try to call out to their God for help, but that was all they had. And right under that circumstances, everybody is surrendering to hopelessness. One guy steps forward, and he's wearing chains. He calls for the entire ship's complement to come, to be assembled, and to hear what he has to say. And what is fascinating is that they do. That tells you how bad the situation was, to where they're even willing to listen to a guy wearing an orange jumper and bouncing in chains who has something he wants to tell them. That's how scared they were. He stands before them, and he speaks words of reassurance. He says, I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. And I know it looks dire, hopeless. But you need to know something. My God visited me by an angel. And he told me something. And my God never lies. Whatever he says... It always happens. And here's what he has told me. He has told me that while the ship will indeed run aground and it will be wrecked, it'll be near an island and not one of you will die. Now, Paul had the advantage of having already tried to warn them about the fact that if they set sail from where they were, They were going to meet with disaster. Well, he had been right about that, so it seemed likely that he might also be right about this. And so the ship perks up just a little bit and continues about doing what they were supposed to be doing. And as they do, eventually they confirm by taking depth readings that they are, in fact, approaching land. But they've been swept so far out to sea They have no idea where it is or what it is. They just know that it's getting closer. And so the captain orders that all remaining anchors also be lowered in order to avoid striking a submerged ridge. They're being continually swept by the storm and dragged toward land. They don't know what it is. They don't know where it is. They got every anchor that they have trying to slow them down, but it isn't really working, and they know they're headed towards somewhere where there's going to be danger. And so the crew immediately figures out, we got to get off of this thing. We got to get off. If we don't, we're all going to die. So they hatch a plot. This ship, like most ships of the era, had what were called skiffs. Uh, The modern equivalent would be a lifeboat. They had lifeboats. Now, not for everybody, but a few. They were usually used for just going between the ship and the shore and back again. And so the crew devises a plan, a very shrewd one apparently, where they tell the captain, we're going to lower the skiff down and we're all going to get in it, but everything will be fine. Now, I don't know what kind of an excuse they came up with, but it must have been a humdinger because they start lowering the skiff and immediately Paul, when he sees it, knows This ain't good. So he goes to uh, Julius and he says to him, if you let them lower that ship down, that little skiff, and get in it, 
every person on this ship is going to die. The inference being, these guys are about to abandon ship. Well, it doesn't take Julius long. He goes to one of his soldiers, and he says, I want you to go to that skiff right now and cut every line. And I'm sure as the sailors were standing, looking on in horror, ka-chunk, 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 they start cutting the lines, and the skiff hits the water and drifts away. And now, everybody is left on board to have to suffer the same fate. They are exhausted, they are angry, they are mutually suspicious, and they are deathly afraid. Which brings us to our passage, Acts 27, starting at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Paul urges them to eat. What an unusual thing he does. He's sizing up the situation. He's probably the only guy on board that's keeping his wits, including all these soldiers that were so highly trained, including the crew. He's the only guy that has kept himself under control. And he steps forward and he says, listen, it's been 14 days. We'll talk about what, what he's talking about here in a minute. But basically he says, you need to eat something. Paul assesses the situation, and he starts addressing the most important thing first. You need to eat. Why? He knew that they hadn't eaten in a long time, almost two weeks. They hadn't taken on any food. How would you be doing after two weeks without any food? Probably not real great. Would your perspective be really, you know, high and joyous and exuberant and confident? Probably not. You're seriously depleted physically because you haven't eaten for that long. He knew that part of the reason they hadn't eaten is because they were just so busy trying to stay alive. They're in the middle of a typhoon. And so they don't have any time for things like eating. They're just trying to stay alive. They're trying to think of everything they can to save this ship. And then once the tide turns and they become convinced that there is no hope, they don't eat because they figure, what's the point? And so Paul says, you have to start by eating something. He knew that the greatest threat to their lives in this moment wasn't even the storm. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't the storm. It was the fact that they hadn't eaten anything. And the reason they hadn't eaten is because they had given way to a defeatist narrative. Nothing will take your soul, will take your desire to stay alive, like just believing that there is no hope. And so he says, you need to eat something. He knew that if he was going to change their destiny, he first had to change their thinking. which is a great thing to know when it comes to how do we influence the world around us. We already know that they're not real friendly toward what the Scripture has to say. They're not real friendly, therefore, sometimes toward us. But we live in a world of chaos, which means we live in a world of triumph, or excuse me, of, of uh, turmoil, and, and a world of fear. 
And one of the things that you and I can do under those circumstances is to demonstrate the confidence of our hope, the confidence of our God. That is a very winsome thing, which then begs the question, how do we respond in crisis? Most people just freak out. That's been most of my life. That's been my go-to. When, when things get really bad, just freak out, try to run and hide. And I've learned since then, no, I cannot do that. And I don't need to do that because my God is my confidence. And therefore, my thinking's been changed. It says that they had been 14 days. That's how long it had been since the hurricane had struck. They had been in life and death circumstances for two weeks without food. They had continued in suspense, it says. We know today that prolonged fear and stress will in inevitably steal all joy from life. And one of the ways that you and I can really wield influence in a lost world is to go to people. What did Jesus say? Those who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give them rest. We need that rest ourselves so that we can then take it to a lost world. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Words of life. Words of life. You are afraid of the most menacing thing to humanity, death itself. But you don't need to be. He says, take some food, for it will give you strength. There's times... When we get so depleted, when we're so discouraged, when we're so down that we need to come back just to the simple basics. When we're, we're down emotionally, when we're down phys, uh, spiritually, we need to sometimes just care for ourselves physically. Proper diet, exercise, sleep, just ABC basic stuff. That isn't at the core of what we take to a lost world, but sometimes that can be a very effective thing for somebody who's already depleted and can't receive the message of the gospel because they're just so far down. And that's something that you and I can do. And then Paul says, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He reassures them that no one is going to die. How did he know that? Here's something crazy for you. God told him. And he believed God. And he lived in that belief. And he shared it with others. And the effect of it was that he's going to begin to turn the tide on this ship's crew and passengers and soldiers who had all given up. And he's going to breathe life into their situation. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread. In giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Okay, so now Paul has had his say. He stood before the entire ship's complement, and he has told them, first thing we got to do is eat something. Everybody on this ship needs to eat something because you're going to need your strength. Why? Because you're not going to die. You're not going to die, but you're going to need your strength. For what lies ahead? Because we do have challenges that lie ahead, and you're going to need your strength for it. But you're not going to die. So he starts with that. 
He starts with the influence of what he says, but then he starts with another form of influence, and that is example. What does he do right after that? He tells them, you guys all need to eat. You're depleted. You all need to take some food. And then what does he do? Hand me that bread. And kapong. I don't know you did it that way, but I like it. And then, yunk. Mmm, that's good bread. This Egyptian grain is superior. And he's, and he's eating in front of them. What's he doing? He's setting an example. He's showing them, listen, you want proof that we're not going to die? Hey, listen, would a dying man eat? No. A living man would, though. Somebody who's confident that he's not going to die would. And so he takes the hope of what God had told him, and he communicates it, both with his words and with his example. Beloved, hang on to that, because that's going to be key in how we have influence in our culture today. He does two things here that are really what the lost world outside need to see. The first is he gave thanks. He fearlessly acknowledged his God as the supplier of everything that is needed and as the only one who could save them. I dare say there were a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures with a lot of different religious beliefs who were all crying out to their God. And essentially what Paul is saying is, save your breath. There's really only one God, and he's the only one that can provide and protect. And then he broke it and began to eat. He, he, he demonstrated integrity in what he said. He didn't just say one thing and do another. He lived out what he said. Since we're not going to die, we all need to eat. Let me show you how. Yonk. Simple. And yet sometimes these things elude us. I think that as the crew and the passengers and the soldiers were all probably staring there like going, who is this guy? And they're watching him eat. You know what I think the primary effect of it would have been? This guy is either crazy or he's right. And everything I know about him so far tells me I don't think he's crazy. Which means... Maybe he's right. And if he is, maybe if he isn't afraid, maybe I don't need to be. You know, I think one of the most effective ministries that God has given me, and yet it's, it's by no means my favorite, and that is I, I do a lot of funerals. And when you're doing a funeral, you are, you are ministering to people who are at probably one of the lowest points of their life. And most, other than, a, you know, true believers, most don't have any hope. They're, they're putting out platitudes that they hope are true. Well, they're in a better place. But, you, you know, you can tell they don't really believe it. And because they're under duress, oftentimes they'll, they'll fight with each other. Or they'll hide. Or they'll try to anesthetize themselves with some drug or alcohol. And one of the things that I've been privileged to do in those moments is both from, from the altar when I, when I do the service itself, or, but better still individually with them, is to provide them 
some hope. You know what's funny? I always preach the gospel where it talks about how God rescues those who place saving faith in him. And yet I'll know most of the time that my audience doesn't really, hasn't embraced that. And yet afterwards, they're always comforted. You know why? Because even though they haven't embraced it, they still know it's true. The truth always resonates even if we reject it at a, you know, a guttural level. Paul's words rang true and they had the effect of influence. Verse 36, how do I know that? How do I know he had influence? Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Paul told them they weren't going to die. He told them they were depleted. He showed them that they needed some food. He reassured them, and then he set the example by eating some. And the effect of it was, one by one, they started reaching into the basket and saying, here goes nothing. And pretty soon, another starts eating, and another starts eating, and influence is, is beginning to reverberate throughout this, reverberate, throughout this ship. That's how it works, dear ones. It says they were all encouraged and ate. The ultimate gauge, and, and, and this is something the church, I think, needs to learn too. The ultimate gauge of spiritual influence isn't the ability to control others. The ultimate gauge is the ability to inspire others. A lot of times we, we think that if we can just seize power, then we can make the world into what God wants it to be. Dear ones, it doesn't work like that. Formal authority, political power, military power, whatever power you want to talk about, I'm not condemning those things. I'm just saying that the real power of God is the power to inspire through influence. That's how the world changes. And that's what Paul did here. And notice it's, I, I love the fact that Paul doesn't gloat over the fact that he was right before. Boy, isn't that a temptation when you're proven right to not rub it in? To not say, well, listen, of course you guys are all defeated. Of course you guys are all depressed. You know why? Because you didn't listen to me. You bunch of nitwits. Paul, there's no sense of that. He's got compassion for them. Yes, they're where they are because of their own mistakes, but he doesn't gloat over that. He says, listen, God still loves you. God still wants you to be rescued. He's going to rescue you, but here's your part. You have to act on that. You have to act on that belief that God is going to save you and step into it. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. We will pick this up next week right where we left off here. But my prayer for today is that you'll just maybe begin to meditate on the fact that God wants to use you, yes, you, to begin to wield influence among the people that you meet along life's path. And it might be in a different way than what you've thought. It starts with knowing the truth, believing the truth, and then living out the truth, setting the example. And as we do that, yes, influence begins to grow. We'll finish this up next week. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you for your beloved here this morning who've come to hear it, and my prayer is to apply it. I pray that you would multiply our influence and that it would be based on that same truth, 
our understanding of who you are, our understanding of what you have said, and our willingness to obey and live that out before others, and then to just watch in amazement as you begin to give us influence, the ability to be persuasive, and to plant those seeds of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.